Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is the second part of a two-part series with Professor Philip Pettit. The series covers the structure and argument of his new book, The Birth of Ethics. So, in the first part of this series, we lay out the challenge before us, which we phrased as how to give an account of the emergence of ethics, what ethics is, and why we should act in an ethical or moral way, given the constraints of a naturalistic universe. Now, we set up the challenge in a lot more detail than that, and what an account would have to do to meet that challenge. So I encourage you to maybe go back and start the series there. I mean, if you don't care for that context and you just want to jump straight into the answer to the challenge, please feel free. But I do think the two halves work together quite well. Couple of quick notes before we get into today's episode. Over the holidays, I might, I usually release an episode every Saturday. I might not release one next week over the Christmas period because I'll be traveling, I'll have a bunch of stuff going on. And I don't know how, you know, if everyone's going home for the holidays or stuff, I don't know that people will necessarily need or want an episode on Christmas week. I'm still thinking about that one, so get back to me if you have any thoughts. Um, but if there's not one next week, I haven't stopped doing the podcast. I'm just taking a break for a week and we'll be back up in the new year. Second quick note, just before we get started, I asked for feedback some time ago on if we should do ads on the podcast, uh, paid advertisements, either with me reading them, me plugging a particular service or anything like that. Um, since then, as the show's numbers have picked up, I've received another couple of people have contacted me. There's now apparently quite a big economy in this, and there's various agencies that um, act as facilitators between people who want products promoting and podcasters. I've decided I'm not going to. And here's my thinking, is even when I asked for feedback, a bunch of you said, yeah, you know, if that's the cost of keeping the lights on or whatever, then so be it, do it, fine. Which I appreciate, but I've seen just on my personal Facebook feed a number of people complaining about ads on podcasts, and it bugs me too. There's a number of podcasts I really like that I think are completely spoiled by every ten minutes the host interrupts to... um to talk about a commercial product, and I just don't like it personally, so I'm not going to do it on this show. It's my podcast, I can do what I want with it, and I just think, especially for a conversation like this, where this is not, you know, a product I'm put putting out there that's going to be something that everyone's going to love, that's fine. It's a very niche thing where we do these deep, sustained philosophical arguments where we really try and get to the bottom of what's going on in a podcast and public-facing form. I think for this conversation I'm bringing you, if I put ads in it, it would destroy it. So I'm just not going to. And thankfully, Enough of you have sponsored on Patreon that we more or less cover the various hosting costs of the show, which, you know, which do add up. Now, anyway, so that's what I'm going to do going forward. I'll try and cover everything as best I can. And if you do want to support the show, like I say, we have a Patreon account. You can sponsor us on whatever level is appropriate to you. I've suggested a donation of $2 an episode. So if an episode is worth as much to you as a cup of coffee or 
some similarly priced equivalent, then we'd love your support. Um, you can do more, you can do less. You can just go to patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, and the links to that are also on the website, along with the links to followers on social media, iTunes, all of that. The website is politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. If you want to support the show but um, aren't able to do a donation of any kind, that's also fine. Um, the whole point of this is it goes out for free. Um, another way you can support the show is by sharing it on your own social media. So either of those, and I'm going to make a commitment that I am never doing ads on this podcast because the more I think about it, the more I realize how much I dislike them personally. And if listeners can help cover the costs directly, that would be great. Um, and if you're not able to do that, sharing also helps. So those are my announcements. Let's get straight into today's show. I introduced Professor Pettit and we set up the conversation in the last episode. So if you're wondering what's going on in this one, maybe like I say, go back and check that out. I'll make a couple of quick points about this episode is that there were some times, particularly when the conversation turned to moral consequentialism and when it turned to free will, that I was tempted to bring in some of my own views and push back a little bit. And you can see me sort of deciding not to. In retrospect, I'm really happy with that decision because it meant we got to um, complete the, the argument of the book and really land it and get to the conclusion in a way that I'm really happy with. And... I really like this episode, and a lot of what Professor Pettit said, I got something out of personally, and I've been thinking about since, and I'm going to incorporate into my own set of arguments and my own ethical and political worldview. So this was, like, legitimately super valuable for me, and I hope it is for you as well. I think there is actual moral wisdom. I think it is possible to know things about morality and even to be wise about them. And I genuinely think um, a lot of the parts of Philip's argument get to that level, that, that, that are morally wise. So I really hope you like this. Um, without any further preamble, let's get straight back into my conversation with Professor Philip Pettit. So you just said ethics is now making an entrance. Please, please elaborate. Well, to do that, think of a um, think of a very intelligent animal, maybe a higher primate. Now, so far as we can see, and I shouldn't, I don't speak with authority here. It's a sort of imaginary higher primate, let's say. It presumably is going to have all sorts of desires, including desires, of course, that are quite altruistic for the welfare of its young, for example, and all sorts of desires of that kind. And, and it's going to behave on the basis of those desires. Many of them will be, as I say, 
will be in tune with the welfare of others, not just their own selfish welfare, even perhaps altruistically with others that they interact with regularly. But as I think of it, as we imagine the world from the point of view of such a non-communicating animal in the sense of not having natural language, it's the kind we have, um, there's only going to be one category, so to speak, on the desire side, and that is what is attractive, what is appealing, what is, what is drawing me to act, you know, like the, the youngster that's in trouble on the branch, I go and the youngster that's hungry, I go and get food, I'm hungry myself, I see the plums on the tree, I go and get them, I eat them. Um, there's got, behavior is going to be totally driven by what's, what's attractive to that creature. Now go back to our creatures, our imaginary human beings, who are, who'd gotten to the stage of making avowals and making pledges. And now here's what they're often going to find. I'm going to wake up, I've pledged that I'm going to go hunting with you, right? I've pledged that intention, right? Meaning if I don't turn up, I can't get off the hook in either of the standard ways. I can't say change my mind, can't say, oh, I got myself wrong. I thought I had an intention. I can't do either of those things. So at this stage, I don't feel like going hunting. Let's suppose it's a miserable looking morning or whatever. I'm comfortable in bed. So I've got a felt or experienced desire, which is to stay in bed. But I've got a committed desire, which is the desire I committed to you or pledged to you, intention actually, to go hunting. And you think so that's the door ethics is going to slip in I think through? That's the that's the narrow wedge that ethics enters by, because at this point there's going to be a contrast between what I find attractive and what I find. Well, what do we say? Attractive in light of what I vowed or what I pledged. Well, a natural word is going to be whatever word would be introduced. You know, imagine a sound. A natural translation into our language would be, but it's desirable. You know, I ought to go. Um, I ought to go hunting, even though I actually desire to stay in bed. Why so? Well, because, first of all, these two clashing desires, the experienced desire and the pledged desire, as between those, um, I've got to choose. I've got to go one way or the other. But I realize if I don't go with the pledged desire, intention, then there's going to be a long-term cost to me, a reputational cost of a very serious sort. If I, so to speak, it's important to me that I maintain relations with others, my persona, as it were, in the social, in the society, I've got to go with that, I've got to go with that desire. And so I think at this point, you can already begin to see why these creatures, unlike our very intelligent primate, are going to, assuming this big language, are going to look for a word, are going to find a word that expresses for them the fact that this way of behaving actually may not be all that attractive, but is still the way, so to speak, that I, well, to put it in English, should go or ought to go. So you that opens up the, the, the essential sort of division or bifurcation between the attractive and the obligatory, or, you know, the desirable, let's say. 
And that's where I think you begin to make sense of how desirability concepts might come on stream for creatures of this kind. So it opens the door to it, but it doesn't push the whole baggage train through because at that point when I'm sitting in bed and I'm like, man, this bed's comfy, but, you know, I did promise uh, Peter that I would go hunting with him. I'm still within the realms that could... I mean, you could sort of even model it on rational self-interest. You could say, I'm weighing the discomfort of getting up over the utility loss of the reputational cost. Now, I might not process it in exactly those terms. The way, you know, one of the things, like, I'm increasingly realising is just a truth about human nature, is we don't like to admit often how, like, base our motivations are. We tell different stories. So the story might be, yeah, my bed is really comfy, but I ought to go with Philip because I promised him. But we still haven't gotten into a world whereby, if I could have the best of both worlds, if I could stay in bed and not suffer the reputational cost, you haven't... Now, maybe I'm just saying there's no ghost in the machine here, and maybe they're just, you know, the truth of the matter is there just isn't a ghost in the machine. But it seems like when people say morality, they want that thicker ought. The, the, uh, the challenge of Plato's Republic is meant to answer that you will do the right thing irrespective of consequence. And that doesn't seem to have gotten online yet. Well, there, there are two ways in which, as I said, this is the first step, as I described it in... in my genealogy. There are two respects in which um, we haven't, so to speak, gotten there yet. I'm not sure whether we can go through all the detail in, in this interview, um, but I'll, I'll at least can point out the flaws. One is it's highly individualistic, right? I'm thinking what's desirable for me, right, versus what's attractive for me. Now, I think, and in the story I tell, that it becomes equally intelligible why acting with others in a group, so to speak, you develop concepts of what's desirable for us, right, versus what's appealing for us, and break away from the individualism. And I'm very keen on, on doing that because I think that essentially morality and ethics is, is a social phenomenon that you can't make sense of in a Cartesian way from what's required of us as individually rational creatures. The second way, though, in which it's inadequate is that it's also so close to the reputational cost involved that it desirable isn't just desirable for me, but it's also desirable in virtue of the fact that I'm going to suffer unless I do this. I'm going to lose the reputation, right? So it's more like a prudential ought rather than an of a of a, so to speak, higher caliber, higher status kind, right? Now, as I tell the story in the book, there you introduce the social as well as the individual. You then find that um, people are often going to find a conflict between what they regard as desirable, because after all, you're going to care, say, for you're young or your dependents in a different way from what I care for them. There's going to be what we call in the lingo agent relative desires and corresponding agent relative judgments of desirability. You're, 
I'm going to think it's really important that my children, you know, get a good education. You would think it's really important that your children do, let's suppose. Um, and while we may care about one another's children, we're not going to care about them in the same way we care about our own. And that's going to be mirrored at the level of commitments to those children and so on. So another stage is telling a story about why and how people would evolve a concept of desirability that would enable them to, so to speak, do business with one another in the language of desirability, coming to some agreement as to what counts as desirable, period, so to speak, not just desirable for me, not just even desirable for us in a particular group, but desirable well, period is maybe too strong, but that communicates the notion of moral desirability. And the story I tell, like the story up to now that we've been sketching, does not involve a contract, you know? It doesn't require people to come together and make a plan, you know? Trouble with that is it's, it's so unlikely that that ever happened uh, that what emerges from it would scarcely count as a plausible candidate for what corresponds to what we call desirability. But I think that you can, and I tried to tell a story of mutual accommodation and adjustment between people who've individually come to use the word desirable, and even in groups, desirable for us, focusing on a notion of what I call multilateral desirability, which gets us very close to a candidate for what you and I mean by morally, morally desirable. Now, it's very important to me in the story I tell that it makes sense of desirability concepts without committing us to a consequentialist or a non-consequentialist story as to what actually is desirable. In fact, as I argue in the book, this story about how desirability concepts emerge and what, they, what they're referring us to in the world, uh, these concepts, they they leave it open as to whether or not in our own thinking with these concepts about what we think is right, why some of us would go in a consequentialist direction and other in a non others in a non-consequentialist direction. Okay, yeah, and that, that was another bit that interested me. But just one question about the, the coming together in and like finding um, hang on, let me get my, let me get my words right here. Finding like a, can can we say like a shared consensus of at least some types of desirability that may be in conflict with other types of desirability is both consequentialism and at the very least deontology, if maybe not virtue ethics, both have a universalizing instinct that seems to be absent yeah. here. In that. You know, if suffering is undesirable, it's undesirable for all people. If it's wrong to treat people as means, and not not as ends, or whatever that one is, then that's true across all space. Whereas it seems like you could have two tribes or communities that don't interact with each other at all, that form, and historically this surely must have been the case, radically divergent ideas even down to stuff like don't lie or don't kill. Some societies view honour killing as perfectly acceptable and others don't. Um, and you would only be able to assess those moral orts from within the framework of those communities, but you, you wouldn't be able to be in a position to stand outside of both and judge one over the other. Or am I getting that wrong somewhere? Well, 
there's certainly evidence that, you know, different societies, now that was true in history, made different judgments as to what was desirable. So, for example, we know that many societies thought it was desirable to, um, to expose unwanted children, you know, children that they couldn't support as babies. Um, and we, I think, can explain the, many of those divergences. Uh, some societies get caught in revenge, you know, it come, comes to be thought of as something, a matter of honor and so on. In other societies, it's deplored. But it's one thing to have divergence in what's judged to be desirable or undesirable. What's, it's quite another thing to have divergence in the emergence of desirability concepts. And the very striking thing about our species is that regardless of divergence at the level of ethical judgments, we have an enormously shared ethical toolkit, as I call it in the book. And what I'm trying to explain is how we as a species could have come to have had an ethical toolkit with tools around the concept of desirability and the other one we're going to come to around the concept of, of responsibility. Now, I think that one of the features of desirability, as you say, as we approach desirability period, is that it is regarded as relatively universal uh, on all sides. The divide, actually, as I see it, between those who go a consequentialist way and those who go a non-consequentialist way is the following, that the consequentialists essentially say, if I'm going to find common ground with you in determining what is desirable, then I could do that only by finding ground in common with you where we have agent-neutral goods. Pain is bad, peace is good, you know, general uh, features like that, um, and that that is the coinage, the currency in which all ultimately all moral justification has to rest. And that's possible with the ethical toolkit, as we've explained it, because there are agent-neutral concepts of desirability that we can explain the emergence of. The non-consequentialist, and that's a very large school indeed, um, basically what they say is, and it's perfectly intelligible why they should say it, this is, you know, I'm now wearing a hat where I regard both schools of thought as wholly intelligible. The non-consequentialist says, no, we can find common ground of a different sort. And it'll certainly include the agent neutral values of the kind you mentioned. We all think pain is good, pain is bad peace is good, and so on, prosperity is good. But I care about my children in a way in which you don't, and you care about yours in the way in which I don't, and you care about maybe your promises being kept in the way um, in the way I don't care about your promises being kept to a third party, that is. And I care about my promises being kept in the way you don't care. But here's how we can justify to one another, find common ground with one another, is by arguing, look, what I just did may not promote agent-neutral values that I share with you best, but you should understand what I did because it's based in part on values, agent-relative values, like the good of my ch helping my children, keeping my promises, that at least you can understand by isomorphism with me. 
you know, because you, and I wouldn't blame you for doing it, would care about your children or your reputation, your promise keeping in an analogous way. So consequentialism finds an identical ground between you and me when it comes to our justifying our actions to one another in the currency of desirability, whereas the non-consequentialist is happy with isomorphic ground in justification between people. Okay, so let's not go down the rabbit hole of who's right there, because... No, I've, I don't want to. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I've done literally, it's got to be like 15 hours of conversations at this point on um, why I think what the non consequentialist said there is sort of missing the point, and actually they're kind of a consequentialist deep down. They're just not admitting it to themselves. But that's another story. So let me just another map. Story, yes. Let me just map back and try and make sense of what you just said for, for my own sake, because this isn't. This isn't the most easy and straightforward conversation to have in the world. But what you're saying, I raise the challenge of, of um, universalizability. That seems to be a property we want in our moral systems, right? And I pointed out that like different tribes might come to quite different conceptions of what's desirable. And you said, well, yes, that's true, but they would both they both come to an understanding, both in our counterfactual history and seemingly in the world, that there is such a thing as, as the desirable in the first place. Uh, if the particulars of our morality aren't universal, the fact that we, we recognise that domain broadly seems to be, or seems to be for the vast majority of people. Did I, did I track that back right? You, you did. Um, I would just add, though, one further point about universalizability, where I think you and I agree. Um, when you and I as individuals imagine this community, are talking about not just, I know what's desirable for me, as well as what's attractive for me, you know what's desirable for you, as well as attractive. We're looking for what we think of as desirable, and we can each agree on, so we can, you know, blame one another, looking forward to responsibility now, insofar as we don't live up to that common desirability. When we're looking for that multilateral, as I called it, desirability, we have to take account of one another's perspectives. Now, one way of doing that and finding a multilateral notion of what's desirable would be by determining what's desirable in this multilateral way, on the basis only of neutral values, right? Values that each of us recognizes equally. Or we could do it on the basis of a mix of those values and agent-relative values in the non-consequentialist way. That's what I'm saying. Now, when it comes... And so each of those camps accepts universalizability because the consequentialist, of course, says that Whatever is good, desirable. So, so hang on, because this is this is kind of a funny sentence to say. So, universal universalizability is prior to what it is that we're universalizing. Yes, yes. So, when you say universalizability, I mean, I say something is. Um, that's a reason for me to do it. That's desirable for you know. Um, that's desirable from my point of view that I do it. And you say, well, if you're using desirable in the multilateral way, then if it's desirable for you, it ought to be desirable for anyone in your situation. 
you know, with your circumstances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what universalizability requires, that whatever is desirable multilaterally for one person is desirable in that same sense for anyone in that person's situation. And the thing is, something can be desirable multilaterally on the basis of advancing mutual goods that everyone on all sides of the debate recognize as identical ground are partly on the basis of some goods that are isomorphic between the two of them. Like, uh, I justify what I do on the grounds, well, it really was essential for the welfare of my children, where the background um, assumption is that it would be fine for you to do it equally if it was necessary for your children, right? So they both have universalizability. Now, if you've got two communities, each have developed an ethical toolkit, right? Each has developed a notion of desirable for the individual, desirable for a particular group, desirable, period, multilaterally. And they come into conflict with one another, right? They come into to exchange with one another. If their exchanges are going to become discursive exchanges, exchanges in language where they come to rely on one another, it's not just war, all-out war, then they are going to have to have a notion of multilaterally desirable that's going to be shared between them, at least on a range of issues, or they will be forever, so to speak, locked in conflict at that level. So the push as individual meets individual, group meets group, societies meets society, pushes us towards a notion of multilateral desirability, whether consequentialist or non-consequentialist in nature, that encompasses everybody so that each can agree if that's multilaterally desirable for me or for us, our group or us, our society, it's desirable for any. Right, because it's necessarily... How do I want to say this? But it, it's it's linguistically and pragmatically necessary to talk in universalizable terms. So if we're from different tribes and I'm saying your tribe ought not to um, steal cattle from our tribe, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that is necessarily a universal statement, right? Mm-hmm. It, it mm-hmm. makes no sense for me to go up to you and say, listen... According mm-hmm. to what I find desirable, dis, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want you touching my cattle, but I understand that, like, you want to touch the cattle, and there's no, it doesn't make sense to talk in a way that's local there as, like, a strategic, right? Right. So if I've got a desirability concept that's just desirable for me, and you've got just desirable for you, then we could be locked in mortal combat, so to speak. You looking for what's desirable for you, I for what's desirable for me. And if we're going to, in the language of desirability, which we've now accessed already in terms of the, the narrative we've told, then we have to expand to a notion of multilateral desirability in order to find a currency in which to justify ourselves, each of us, to the other. So let me come in here and say something that I don't agree with, but I think that a lot of people will be saying right now, is this is the part where people are going to want a ghost in the machine, right? People are going to want to say, but in virtue of what, right? Like, we're from different tribes, I'm telling you to leave my bloody cows alone, and I'm appealing to something universal. And I just, I think people are like, you know, God abstract reason something 
people are going to want to say, so there's nothing behind this other than that's just how we exchange words and bonds with each other. And if someone says there has to be something more to it, more foundational than that, that it can't just be this narrative. There has to be, there has to be a, a, a deep ought at the heart of it. What's what's your sort of response to that gut concern? Okay, so I think that this you know multilateral notion of desirability emerges <clears throat> as a result of within the subject the notion of desirable versus attractive emerging. Each becomes aware of and responsive to a concept of desirability. And then, because of the conflict between individuals, they come to an intersubjective agreement, so to speak, on what will count as desirable in this society. And, of course, societies then build up judgments, assumptions about what is desirable in that sense, and they raise their children, you know, to accept that um, not killing is desirable in this sense, that, you know, not lying, telling the truth, is desirable in this multilateral sense. And it sort of takes off within the society. But of course, it's entirely intelligible why, especially elders, as they induce, induct children into this level, as it were, provide a a backing for it by saying that there is a God who is ordained that this is how we should behave. And um, it's a sort of father figure or parent figure, I should say, you know, just as the child learns, you know, ultimately you do it because daddy or mommy says that you do it, right? You give that sort of authority <clears throat> to what is actually a notion of the intersubjectively desirable that our species has struggled towards and have culturally found our way into and have negotiated and sustained in ever-fragile sorts of circumstances because it's always under pressure, and you give it a sort of an aura of extra extraterrestrial authority, literally, by invoking a god at the back of it, for example. Which leads us on to the question then, why... Be, be moral. Actually, just before we do, I put a flag in the in the free will w- word, and I promised to come back to that. So let's just yes. quickly cover responsibility, because I've taken the view on this show that, at least in a sort of hardcore libertarian, you are the ultimate originator of your actions. Free will is a ghost in the machine. It's kind of woo-woo, and that actually has moral significance. But when you talk... I think I got this from your book about the idea of you could have done otherwise, you're not making a statement about the determinism of the universe or anything like that. You used the phrase, it's a sort of retroactive exaltation of someone. Could you talk, could you talk us through, because we've covered the desirable, could you cover the responsibility side and then we'll end with why should you be that way? I see, right, okay. Well, First of all, on the free will issue, maybe I oversold, you know, what I mean by free will, and when I say human beings have free will, all I mean is that human beings are, in many cases, fit to be held responsible for what they do. Because actually, when we ascribe free will to one another, that's basically a slightly grandiose way of saying of one another that we are fit to be held responsible. I mean, the dog spoils the carpet, you know, wets the carpet. And, you know, you may, 
you may try to train it or condition it or you may get irritated with it. But you don't think the dog, it could have done otherwise, it should have done otherwise. You don't think that it's fit to be held responsible, in other words. Whereas we do think of that of one another. And that's all I mean by we ascribe free will to one another. So the question is going to be, how would the human beings we're imagining in this counterfactual world, by the way, I call that world Air One, you know, as a early nineteenth century novel have it towards an, an acronym of um, of nowhere. In Air One, right? We've explained how these people would have come to have a notion of notions of desirability, even work the way towards a notion of the multilaterally desirable, in that sense the ethically desirable. So how would they come to have the idea of one another that they are fit to be held responsible, treat one another as if, so to speak, determinism were not true, as if we had this spooky power, you know, of directing the physical world, our bodies, in one direction or another, rather than having natural laws, so to speak, do that. And this, of course, is really the maybe the, the major question in philosophy is to find room for fitness to be held responsible. So here's the story that um, that I develop in the book, and I should say it's built on independent joint work with uh, Victoria McGear. So imagine these creatures, these protagonists in Air One, uh, and they are mutually reliant, as we've said. They each care a lot about their own reputation. They've each learned to to make avowals and pledges, staking their reputation on it. They've each learned the language of desirability that comes in train with that. Okay, now let's just focus on the fact that they each assume of the other that the other is reputationally sensitive. In other words, they each assume, if I take it, that you're more likely to turn up at the hunt, to go back to that example, because you pledged to be at the hunt, meaning that you couldn't get off the reputational hook by saying that you'd changed your mind or that you got your mind wrong, then I'm assuming of you that you really care about what I think of you. I'm assuming of you that my opinion of you matters, right? Otherwise, I wouldn't have thought that you were staking anything, right? But of course, you assume the same of me, and indeed, it's a matter of common assumption in the society that we're each terribly responsive to what others think of us, right? Okay, first step. Second step, right? Insofar as that's true, you're in a situation where, let's suppose, someone has asked you, um, um, uh, you, you, you know you're going to be asked about your past deeds, let's say it's an interview or whatever, and you talk to me about what you ought to do. I'm really concerned about what's desirable for you, but I'm also concerned about what's desirable multilaterally, what's desirable, period. Especially because if I want you to be known to be a moral person, interested in that. And I say to you, look, Toby, you ought to tell the truth. Um, and you say, oh, I know, but it's so difficult. I mean, that's such an embarrassing story. You mean I should own up in the interview, let's suppose, to having, you know, uh, I don't know, um, 
having embarrassed my previous uh, employer by telling stories about him or her. And I say, yes, you, you can do it. You can do it. Go in there, do it. And you ought to do it, right? Okay. That's going to make perfect sense that I should say that sort of thing to you, given that you are sensitive to my opinion of you and to indeed anybody else's opinion of you. Because if I make clear to you by saying you ought to do this, if I make clear to you thereby that I'm going to think the less of you if you don't do it, right? By saying that to you, presumably I'll make it more likely that you will tell the truth because I've made quite clear to you that I'm going to think badly of you if you don't, right? Um, and that's what we call exhortation. I exhort you to tell the truth. So when I say to you, for example, Toby, you can tell the truth about this, even as you say, oh, God, it'd be so embarrassing to do it. And so on. I say, no, Toby, you can tell the truth. I'm not recording some metaphysical modal truth that there is a possibility out there that you tell the truth, you know, like a, a third detached party might be doing. I'm saying something that I think will actually make it more likely that you will tell the truth. I'm not just recording the fact that it's possible for you to tell the truth. I'm making it more likely by saying that, that you will actually tell the truth. And that's what we call exhortation. And all the time in life, whether formally, explicitly, or implicitly, informally, we live in an exhortative community, you know? We just look at one another, and we know of the other person. They're going to think badly if I don't that. That's almost as if the other person is exhorting us, you know, to behave in the way that they would approve of. Will we assume shared standards of decent society here? Okay. Suppose you go to the interview, and you don't tell the truth. You tell a lie, and you come out afterwards. I was maybe at the interview. I know this, or you tell me you told a lie. And I said, Toby, Toby, Toby. <laughs> in, in that tone. <laughs> in that tone. You know, I once trained to be a priest, so I'm a master of that tone. <laughs> I say, Toby, you could have told the truth. You ought to have told the truth. What am I saying? I know you failed. You didn't actually. And presumably the way your brain was just before action, that led inexorably, let's suppose, or maybe by chance at a certain quantum level, to telling the lie you told. But here I am saying, you ought to have told the truth. You could have told the truth. What am I doing? Well, here's the story that I like. And indeed, as I say, something like this, I defend separately with Victoria McGear. I'm basically standing with the attitudes that I had when I exhorted you before the action. Proactive, so to speak, or ex-ante-exhortation is what I did beforehand. What I do afterwards when I say you ought to, you could have told the truth, is I'm standing with those same attitudes. And that's what I call, for want of a better phrase, I'm exhorting you ex-post to have told the truth. I'm saying, what I'm saying to you really is, look, Toby, I haven't given up on you. I mean, I could have decided, having told a lie, that you're a pathological liar. You can't help yourself, right? And I might just give up on you, in which case I'd never rely on you again. I'd have probably very little to do with you that involved relying on your word. No, no, I'm staying with you when I say you could have told the truth. Now, what makes it true that you could have told the truth, if indeed it is true? 
Well, what makes it true is that you're a person who remains within reach of the exhortation of your fellows, of others, of me in particular. And that's a fact about you that I am recording when I say you could have told the truth. What makes that true is that the thoughts I have about you, that you you belong to this exhortable community, you haven't been cast into the outer darkness, so to speak, of the unexhortable, those beyond the reach mm. of birds. But you and, wouldn't, you, you wouldn't, you, you, that wouldn't apply to a baby, right? Or someone exactly who not. was, you know, it's not even moral. It's, it is moral, but it, it, it's a statement about, well, it's a statement about causality. It's a statement that my actions can be influenced. I'm saying of you that you are you are the sort of person responsive to exhortation based on these considerations of desirability, which presumptively you agree with, and you're not beyond the reach of those considerations. That's what I'm saying about you. So there, we do acknowledge in all ethical communities where our res, communities in which we hold another responsible that there are certain factors called excuses or exemptions that really do block it. And if I learned after the fact that actually someone going into the, as you went into the interview, someone said, I'm going to really hurt your child unless you tell a lie, right? Right. Um, Well, if it turns out I learned that's the case, I won't say to you, you should have told the truth, you could have told the truth. Because we all recognize that there are some factors like you know, the welfare of your child depends on it, that really are excuses, you know, that would get you off the hook. But provided there wasn't something like an excuse there that stopped you from telling the truth, provided it was just the way you went, and provided I still think you are reachable by words, by exhortation, I'm going to say to you, you could have done otherwise. You should have done otherwise. I'm going to register that fact about you as a person. And of course, that's a very respectful fact. I'm saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, so to speak, uh, casting you aside. I'm not ostracizing you. I'm not just resigning myself to you being a pathological. I'm sticking with you. And that's where I think the notion of responsibility, we treat one another as fit to be held responsible when we treat one another as within the pale, as within the community of the mutually exhortable. We're signaling that the person in question is still within that community. Okay, but final question, and it's going to be a hell of a question to close on, is let's say someone's followed us with the argument so far, someone who retains the impulse that there must be a god in the machine somewhere. Maybe not a god, but some outside source of value, right? And they say, okay... I understand that we use language. I understand what you're telling me about avowals. I understand from a strategic, game-theoretic point of view why we would get into the habit of making avowals. I understand that um, because of that, we would develop conflicting or sometimes conflicting ideas of goods that we want to pursue because of incentives and language we have that other animals don't. And I understand how we would use language to exhort or maybe even to shame or reprimand people. Again, from a strategic point of view, I get how all of this could be true historically, or even if not true historically, all of this is a plausible account that explains what morality is. But you have still not told me why I should be moral, assuming I can get away with so not being. 
Excellent, really good. So let's make it really difficult. I mean, take the question that I raised in the book about this topic is, suppose I made it a deathbed promise to someone, and maybe it's a promise to do something such that no one else will know about the promise or whether or not I did it, and no one will benefit or, or be harmed by my doing it or not doing it. Maybe I promised someone on a deathbed, someone I used to mountaineer with as a younger person, that in their memory, I will climb such and such a mountain that actually might be very bad for my health, right? Nobody will know I made the promise. No one's better off by my keeping it. No one's worse off by not keeping it. So why would I have any reason whatsoever to keep a promise like that? I mean, would there be, in other words, any aspect of desirability such that I would feel that I owe it to the person and that it's right and desirable for me and that I'm fit to be held responsible if I don't, fit to be blamed if I don't do it. Well, here's the best that I make of that. Within the sort of um, narrative of the book, um, as I've stressed, avowal and pledging, mutual commitment is really of the essence of us as human beings. Now, if we get that ladder that takes us to the level of a vowing and begins in self-interest and reputation, that's for sure. But I believe that that ladder gets kicked away actually quite early on because we come to realize that each one of us, so to speak, is two persons. On the one hand, we're the agent who, of impulse and inkling. The agent who is inclined to believe this, who is inclined to be tempted to that, this desire, whatever. And on the other hand, with the person, the persona, that we have willy-nilly projected for ourselves in all the avowals and pledges we've made to, to others. And in the fact that we live in a society with norms that we all know are expected of one another, that we expect to live up to them, and we haven't disowned those norms, so we've let others assume that we're actually pledged to keep those norms, right? And the persona we project is that of someone who lives up to all of this that is expected of him by other people in virtue of his explicit or implicit avowals and pledges, commitments. We're commissive creatures, right? Now, actually, I think what it is to be a person is precisely to be an agent unlike a dog or even very high primate, who projects a persona by virtue of the fact that they belong to a community of words, a community of conversation and discourse. And so my very person, who I am as a person, is tied to the persona I have projected in all those words, spoken or unspoken, you know, that others have built expectations of me around. And of course, that I have come to expect of myself too, seeing myself as they will see me. So I, it's my integrity as a person that's tied up crucially with my behaving in accordance with my judgments as to what is multilaterally desirable and what consistently with multilaterally desirable is particularly desirable for me or for mine. And, and if I don't live up to that, you know, including to the promise made to the friend, I'm less of that person that I, you know, projected. You know, Polonius, I know it's often said to be ironic on Shakespeare's part, but, you know, Polonius says, to thine own self be true, 
and then adds that if you are, you can't be false to any man, you know? I think there's a deep truth in that, actually. I think we build the person we are, and it's always in the making, on the basis of living up to the persona we project, and we're always projecting a persona in what we say and in what is taken to be true of us by other people in the community that we we inhabit. But you're not ultimately getting out of desirability in a very, very, very broad sense. So you're not talking desirability in terms of rational self-interest, which is a modern construct that's quite narrow and it doesn't capture who, who we are. It's not... I mean, it is hedonism in a very broad sense of, like, all that we could care about is conscious experience, but it's much more than just your immediate hedonic state. It's more like, what would you look back on your life and feel was an honest, authentic representation of who you wanted to be? But you're not, but there's no external source. You're still not getting outside of, you're appealing to reasons to do with my t- my desirability you're not there's there's no point where you're putting something in that is an objective thing that you can anchor this to yes you you've i mean you've climbed a ladder which begins as yates says in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart you know the rag and bone shop of self-interest and reputational concern you've reached a certain level you've kicked that ladder away and the level at which you lived is reached is the level at which you become inducted into community with other people. You've learned what it is to be a person, to gain a name, to gain recognition, to gain status. And that is what you naturally become bonded with, is living up to that person and that person's commitments. But there's no ladder that goes up to the sky either from this point that you've reached, you know, that reaches to anything extraterrestrial, you know. And no, morality and morality's dictates are sort of self-sustaining in this way. But they depend on our existing in community. You see, persons only come into existence simultaneously with other persons. You know, we are persons together. To be a person, someone who, you know, Hobbes actually tells us persona. The word person comes from the Latin per and sono. And it's like a mask, he says, that ancient actors spoke through. Sono, I sound, per, through. And we are, each of us, a persona that we invest heavily in, in the course of our social life. It's everything we are. We're nothing other than that, really, worthwhile. And it's the call of that person we are in which the demands of morality are really grounded. And it, that's why we are so answerable to uh, being held responsible by others. It's, we're really being called back to that self that we are enabled to become in the company of others. And we, we answer the challenge of Plato's Republic. <laughs> well, you know, in a way, that's what philosophers have been out about for two, two and a half thousand years. I mean, we're all struggling from that same sort of sense, you know. And, you know, with morality, I guess, you know, the really are the two ladders tells it all. I mean, one is a story according to which morality is just another name for enlightened self-interest, you know. You never kick away the ladder from the, that begins in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. And the other is the story in which, you know, it's the ladder that, 
takes us to the transcendent, you know, and that's where it's, so to speak, uh, uh, there's a sky hook holding it up, you know, from, from what's transcendent. And uh, what I want is to be a soft naturalist, you know, the world is a naturalistic place. I mean, there's an awful lot we don't know about, an awful lot we don't know about morality and about re- reality, rather. But morality is a human construct, you know, it's the precipitate of human community. And personhood is a gift that becomes available to us as precipitate of human community. And we reach for being a person, you know, in interaction with others. They're all a package deal, being a person, being moral, being fit to be held responsible and counting as having free will. Just just because money isn't ultimately tied to something and it only exists in our perception doesn't make it any the less real. Exactly. It's a nice analogy, isn't it? I mean, uh, I hadn't really thought of it in that way, but morality, money comes into existence on the basis of, of course, what is there in the natural world, the gold or the cattle or the, uh, or the cigarettes. Uh, and morality is the same. It comes into existence on the basis of our interactions, the habits of mutual dependence, the habits of mutual commitment, achieving a point of view that is multilateral and desirability, and holding one another to the standards of desirability, as and we naturally do. the fact that the foundation is so squishy and subjective-seeming doesn't mean that you can't have quite hard facts about money. Like, if you're telling someone the exchange rate is something, it, there, there is an objective truth that is epistemologically knowable about what the exchange rate is. And I don't know that you'd ever get there with morality, but it doesn't mean that you can't say, if the analogy holds, and it's a hell of an analogy, but that you can't make quite concrete statements, even though the, the, the domain only exists because we believe it exists. It's, it's not, so to speak, a domain of illusion. When I say that something is multilaterally or morally desirable, I'm making a statement that is true or false. What is it true or false in virtue of? It's true or false in virtue of it's being desirable in the sense I've explained from the point of view of just anyone, of any human being, that is to say. A point of view that each of us can access insofar as we step out of our own perspective to find in it a subjective ground with others. So there is, you know, there, there's a fact about what is morally right and morally wrong. That's what I believe. There's also a fact about, although of course it comes in degrees, about whether various individuals are responsible, how far they are responsible for what they do, how far there are excuses, and of course there are partial as well as full excuses that may relieve them of responsibility. And for all of us, there's a sort of, there's an aspiration to be fully responsive to what is, by our judgment, multilaterally desirable, and of course, to be fit to be held responsible to that by achieving the responsiveness to considerations of desirability on the basis of the latter that reaches down to the rag and bone shop of the heart, to be responsive in that way that makes us people capable of living with others in a Uh, in a, a, a fruitful and mutually beneficial way.
Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. As I mentioned in the conversation, there's a few topics we covered quite briefly here that I've covered in much more detail elsewhere. So if you're interested in the free will debate, I had a two-part series with Professor Greg Caruso, which was very popular. You can check that out. And if you're interested in moral consequentialism, I've got an episode called Utilitarianism with Professor Roger Crisp of Oxford University. And I also debate Metaethics with Tamla Summers of the Very Bad Wizards podcast. There's an episode called The Point of Moral Philosophy, where we get into a sort of back and forth on whether consequentialism or sort of some form of virtue ethics is correct. So do check out all of that. If you want the full version of the argument that we've just presented to you over the last two episodes, I would recommend Professor Pettit's book, The Birth of Ethics. And as always, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you want to support this project of getting in-depth, sustained, engaged argumentation out there in public for free where anyone can access it, then please do consider sponsoring us on Patreon, um, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. The links to that, as well as all of our social media, different ways to share are on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And a big thank you, as always, to all of our sponsors and everyone who shares episodes. I'm, I'm genuinely grateful, and you really are making this project possible. Apart from that... I will maybe see you next week. Well, I won't see any of you because it's an audio recording and I don't see the audience, but you know what I mean. I'll, uh, I may have an episode out next week. I might take a break over the holidays. I'll post on social media what I'm going to do with that. Either way, we've got a really strong lineup coming on. After that, I will be talking to the author of The Character Gap, Christian Miller, on the philosophy of character. I will be talking about Islamism and the perceived or potential conflict between Islamism and liberalism with Shadi Hamid, who's a Brooklyn's Institute scholar. After that, uh, Professor Rupert Reed will be back on the podcast to talk about Wittgenstein, language, and power. And Dale Martin will return, and we're going to cover the gender spectrum that's presented to us in the New Testament. What did the New Testament authors think about sex and sexuality and marriage. So that's all coming out in the new year. I'm really excited to bring you all of that. And yeah, thanks again for listening. Until then.